Hello and welcome to Venturing in Climate. Venturing in Climate is a podcast which shines a light on the entrepreneurs and investors tackling climate change, as hosted by me, Henry Hamilton. Today, we have Arena Svazipan joining us, the managing partner of Systemic Capital. Welcome, Arena. Thank you for hosting me, Henry. My pleasure. It'd be great to kick things off with a quick introduction into yourself and what Systemic Capital does. Perfect. And thanks again for having me on your podcast. So my name is Irene, as you say, I lead the Systemic Capital team, which is a climate tech fund in London, which recently spun out of Systemic. And for those that don't know Systemic, Systemic is by now the world's leading pure play climate advisory firm, which in turn spun out of McKinsey about six years ago. I joined the Systemic side about four and a half years ago to build the investment VC side from scratch. Before that, I spent almost 13 years at Goldman Sachs, always in London, where I was in the so-called cowboy division of Goldman, which is the commodities division, or at least it was the cowboy division until Dot Frank. So I was on the power side, very much sort of working with asset owners, whether they would be utilities or later on, it was a lot of private equity trading houses and helping them with the risk of underlying commodities, which involved a lot of structuring on the financing side or other sort of derivatives or complicated things and lots of physical assets and physical commodities and cargoes moving around. And in the 2010s, it became obvious that the trend of ever cheaper green energy was going to change the world. And everything that I used to do was going to, you know, at some point sooner rather than later going into the books of history. And I decided that I wanted to be in the forward looking side of the world. And so then I moved to Systemic to build the investment side from scratch. So you obviously came in fresh. How did you start building a investment arm at Systemic? And what did that involve? So we had a very unusual situation that the money was there before we had any idea what to do, right? So there was an early group of investors that had enough trust with the founders of Systemic to say, well, you know, let's start with this first vehicle, which at the time was, you know, a first 20 million, which we then sort of build up and see what you can do with the idea that please get my, get me the money back with a multiple, right? It was never meant to be a grant. <laughs> when I joined, we really thought about what the different activities of systemic could be, right? We theoretically thought about, well, we could be doing very early stage, you know, the seed side or maybe, you know, the series AB. We never really thought about growth because that was never, you know, the amount of capital we had available. But we also thought a lot whether we should be indirect, right? Should we be back in other funds, mm. right? And I think it became clear quite early on that A, series A, B is where we add yeah. most value. And that's because, so first of all, indirect for us doesn't make any sense because you are too removed from the actual founders to really play this ecosystem impact amplification game in any shape or form, right? Because you're removed. But the very early stage, you know, the seed, that doesn't make much sense yeah. either because there is usually not much of an MVP then. And so how are we going to help with the commercialization with our networks if there's nothing to sell in a way? And once you go significant, you know, once you go into sort of series C onwards, then it becomes much more operational scale up. Again, you know, it might be the expertise of individuals, but it's not the DNA of systemic, right? Yeah. Is we think where we add most value, right? As sort of giving a platform, an access platform to founders that they would usually not have access to. Yeah. Okay. And so when they come through to you as a, as an ALB, what are the, what are the things that they need to have 
for you to consider and where do you invest geographically? Sure. So we invest, our mandate is Europe and North America. So we do not invest in emerging markets. We have no teams presence there. So that would make less sense. It's something we might do in the future, but not now. So we typically write checks between with the new fund, right? With the, we've gone bigger with the second fund, anywhere between sort of two and eight, you know, possibly can stretch a bit more sort of million dollars per as initial ticket. We can lead, we can co-lead, we can follow, you know, especially in the US, we'd never lead. If we lead or co-lead, it's, it's in Europe. And even when we invest into yeah. North American companies, it's typically to help them come to Europe, right? We wouldn't invest into a domestic play in the US because we have no presence there. So we have really nothing to add, but we can very helpful with introductions in the European ecosystem. And typically when you go mm. after climate, the European market is often more advanced than the US market, right? In not everywhere, but certainly in many aspects of the decarbonization. What do we look for? Obviously amazing founders, that's always the most important thing. We look at climate, how to say mission aligned founders and partners, because when you are at series A, likely you're gonna still pivot. And if you don't have the same North star that we do, right? Which is how to bring yeah in you know a better world and increase and mitigate climate then chances are you're going to pivot to something that has nothing to do with our investment mandate so that matters a lot to us and we have invested in companies mm. that are you know we we see the impact further out and i can give examples where you know someone might look at that and say well that is not the most impactful company today but we really sort of take a lot of value from the fact that the founders have the same vision as we do. And then in the longer run, right, that's where, that's why we think that company can actually make a massive, a massive difference, right? And an example here would be a company called Nautilus Labs in New York. It's a shipping optimization company, right? And, you know, shipping okay. optimization doesn't sound like a, you know, system 1.0, system 2.0, right? It's like at the edges, right? It makes things a little bit better, which is great, but it's not system transformational, but mm. If you think about shipping in 10 years, maybe earlier, you know, depends on the regulatory push. Today, wherever you go point to point, you have high or low sulfur fuel oil. Actually, it's low sulfur fuel oil after the, the latest IMO regulations. In the future, some roads will be electric. Some might be a hydrogen. Some might have methanol. Mm. Some might have some hybrid systems. Some might have some weird rotary wind systems and so on and so forth. So the data backbone of holding this together will be way more crucial than it is today. And because Nautilus is the most advanced of sort of the IOT companies in the shipping yeah. space, we took the view that, you know, that's where the founders want to go and we will help them to get there because there is no way that shipping can decarbonize without a data backbone, right? So that's sort of, it's an example and we've done other investments like that. We're looking at one yeah. in the transport sector today, which is very much the same thesis. On Nautilus, what was it about the founders that made you think they can execute on, on that vision? Because it's one thing to have a good idea in, in the right space, but the ability to execute is really important. So what was it about them that or their experience that attracted you? Sure. So so I have to start from the systemic side, from the advisory side, because that's usually, you know, our top down, we're very research driven, right? So it usually starts. So Systemic, the Energy Transitions Commission has written extensively about shipping decarbonization. They, you know, they speak to the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, all the time. There is a very strong view of where the sector needs to go, what the sector is prepared to do, and how fast they have to go. 
And I think when we first met the founder, the investment, we went into Series B, which was led by Microsoft, the M12, the Microsoft Venture Fund, who we know the European partner really well. So I, I guess that, that helped. Yeah. You know, when you speak to a founder and you realize that what you mm. want to see in the world, you know, they've got exactly the same thesis, right? And we usually get this a lot with our founders or maybe always. Yeah. Uh, but in the shipping space, we have talked to so many companies, right? And it usually clicks very fast that this is a very special team. And there's a reason why we went to Series B, right? Series A shipping companies are typically nowhere, right? It's a very conservative industry, incredibly hard to change. And Nautilus by Series B demonstrated that yeah. actually they can do it. And they have an outreach, which we had not seen ever before. And an ambition, right? Which was hard for us to see. So that's what, that's what made it click. And we then invested actually quite fast, right? I think it, it took us only a, a week or two to make a, you know, to come to the final decision and invest. Yeah. Really, that is quick. I suppose when you're investing alongside a co-investor, it can quicken things up. On that topic then, how do you ensure, you know, you're doing really thorough due diligence at the same time as being, being quick? Ha, huh, great question. So we follow, we are big proponents of the so-called prepared mind approach. I think we are also lucky in a way that we have these 400 consultants on the back so we can draw a lot of the research, right, from the systemic side and the roadmaps and that what actually help. has to happen. So there's always exceptions to the rule, but the rule as much as possible is that we go top down, right? So we have our four investment themes within each. There is usually, you know, five, six sub thesis, and we know what we're looking for in each of them. And so when the right funding, funding team comes, it's very easy to, to move fast. When it's more of an opportunistic situation, and of course those happens, right? Where you have a founder that comes through some other channels, that sits in a space where we have not done our top-down yet, then in those cases, we cannot go fast, right? So if there's time to take our time, great. If there isn't, then we move, right? Because we we would never invest without, you know, being sort of clueless yeah. about the space. We really try to understand where we then add value and how this plugs back into the systemic system. So then in a way limits, you know, what we can and cannot do, but the systemic outreach is so incredibly broad that that leaves a huge space. I think in, in climate tech, we basically invest into anything in terms of themes other than the primary generation storage of energy. So things like battery, things like grid management, things like power generate, that is out. Everything else is in, right? So the scope is really, really large. Is that out because of the capital intensity? It's, we've done a few of those investments in Fund One, by the way, but it's out because that is not a space where Systemic is particularly well known for. It's also one of those spaces where, you know, each each person and their dog has a view. It's also, I think, a space where, you know, in the energy space, you know exactly what has to happen. <laughs> and it's just about, you know, bringing, bringing in massive amounts of money to execute. There is always outliers, you know, the last battery yeah. and, you know, the next fusion generation and, you know, and things like that. We just don't do any of that because again, I think there's people out there who can be way more value added than us in energy, right? As an organization, of course, it's my background, but I have to take away the individual from the organization. And I think a systemic organization, the, you know, the hard to bait sectors, biodiversity, yeah. the whole world of, you know, chemicals, plastics, chemical, you know, the sort of sustainable finance and how data interlink with that. Those are areas where we are really strong and we have massive expertise. Power generation is an enabler. So we need to understand it because so many of the things we invest in depend on readily available, cheap, 
green energy, but we don't have to invest in it directly. Okay, makes sense. On the capital intensity side, you've mentioned to me before that you do, you know, not just software stuff. Can you give me an example of a hardware investment you've made? And crucially here is how you think about capital intensity in terms of making that investment decision. Does it does the fact that someone says, oh, I need to build a pilot plant really, really put you off or not? Mm. No, it doesn't. We will not get to a net zero without hardware, right? So if you if you want to do climate tech, if you are in climate tech, you have to touch hardware. The software alone is not going to take us there. So we try to construct our portfolio in a risk management appropriate way where the CapEx heavy side is maybe 30% of our portfolio, something like that in terms of AUM then it can always be ups and downs. So in fund one, we've done several CapEx intensive companies. I guess the most high level one is Zeroidia, the hydrogen aviation company. We participated in their seed round, actually. We were their first institutional investors and they have gone on to raise more than a hundred million between private and public money. Uh, We have done Brimstone and Charm on the West Coast there. They were smaller investments, but incredibly strategic. And we absolutely love what those guys are doing. So Brimstone is an alternative cement. Charm is in biomass to carbon removal or in the future biomass to steel. We did Bedeo, which is, you know, if you if you are in London and you see electrified vans from Ocado, those will be all electrified by Bedeo. So they've grown incredibly fast and they are in the electrification of last mile delivery. Mm. And we've done, you know, sort of hybrid hardware yeah. software businesses. We like those, you know, those we like a lot. We've done Omi, which is by now the fastest growing smart charging company in the UK. We did we did Nature Metrics, which is a sort of hybrid lab yeah. software. Now we're trying to sort of to push them a lot more to, towards the subscription model business. So we don't shy away from CapEx heavy, but the bar when it, you know, a zero area like company, which you will have to raise three, 400 million more before it gets to revenues or profitability, in, in this case, revenues, you need to have a founding team, which is beyond exceptional amazing on the technical side, amazing on the commercial side. And that's where you usually lose 99.9% of founders, right? In CapEx heavy stuff. So we believe that if you pick CapEx heavy stuff, right, those are fund returners and they will make a massive impact in the world. Software and climate is easier, but it tends not always, right? You know, there's exceptions, but it tends to be very vertical, not horizontal. And which means that the time available is usually not huge, right? Again, it depends, right? You know, Jupiter, one of our companies in Fund One has gone very successfully horizontal, but it doesn't always happen, right? You know, another one of our companies is Cool Planet in Ireland. They are in energy efficiency, right? That's Mm. quite a vertical. Amazing, huge vertical, but it's not, you know, going to take over across multiple, multiple sectors. So that's how we look at the world. For your hardware investments, how do you think about dilution and returning the fund? As you say, if a company needs, say, 300, 400 million, you you need to have huge follow-on capacity, right? So it'd just be good to hear your thoughts on that. So we follow usually one or two rounds, not the whole way, but via the advisory side, we do work very closely with later stage capital, where it's a growth equity Obviously, the partnership with Systemic and Beyond at Zero is, is in the public domain, but there's others or private equities in sort of the more traditional space or, you know, pension funds. Systemic works very closely with these forms of capital, our own LPs. So we feel that even if we cannot follow, we actually have a very preferential access to more so-called permanent capital. 
So that's one route, but it's not the main route, right? The main route, you have dilution, you have to believe that this company is going to appreciate in valuation so much between one round and another that your dilution is going to be less effective. If you believe that the company is going to raise 400 million and by the end of the journey is going to be worth a billion dollars, then likely you've been wiped out. The trajectory has to be a lot higher, which is why, again, yeah. you talk about exceptional founders who can really, you know, take do what it takes to build a company that in potentially 10 years becomes, you know, like a massive, not, not necessarily moneymaker, because I do think that for hardware, the journey is longer than 10 years, right? But in 10 years, they can demonstrate that they've made it or not. Mm. It's good that you've got the access to the other permanent capital. I think, as you say, climate tech is not just about software. It's about hardware as well. And we're not going to get there by uh, software. So, um, just now shifting towards the fund now. So you've obviously just recently had a first close of, of fund two, which was really exciting and a big moment for you. Can you just talk me through how that the process has gone for, for, for going through fund one and fund two? Obviously, I think the first one was around 30 million and this first close of the second fund is about 70 million. So it'd be great to know what the bigger aim is, the target focus of the fund two. And, and how was that fundraising process? So, as you say, Fund One deployed $32 million, so it was very much a pilot fund. But the team grew, right? It was me and Georgina for a long time. And then the team grew, so the deployment actually by the end was more in line with a much larger fund, right? So it's not like, you know, we have this, you know, shift from one day to another. It actually happened over time. We are a team of five on the investment side. We'll be a second partner is joining us in a few weeks. So we'll be six, which is a very decent team, right? Especially because we've been working together for quite some time. So fund two is targeting 200 million. And we did, as you mentioned, we did a first close of 73 weeks ago. So fun enough, the fundraising wasn't particularly difficult because this first closing, we, we wanted to do it before the summer. We kicked it off in the, at the beginning of March, right? So it really didn't take that long, but that's because a half of it was existing investors from fund one. And then we had some other very strong friends and family in a way of systemic, right? Very deeply in our networks who, who knew what we were doing for many, many years. So we didn't have to go and explain this from scratch. Now, as we go into the further closes, right? We go much more to institutional capital and then you go in a more traditional fundraising path. I would say that fundraising is tough, right? You know, we, we joke that 70 million first closed today, it's equivalent to 140 a year ago. You know, fundraising is tough because people are holding, holding on to cash more. But <laughs> climate and the energy transition are still somehow of a happy island because there hasn't been, you haven't seen the crashes that, yeah. well, you know, on certainly in SPAC territory you have, right? But on the a lot of what we do is still early stage, right? Climate tech hasn't had the opportunity other than those that's backed to see, you know, these like massive burning of billions. And so money had yeah. kept coming in, right? And I think there's never been as much dry powder in climate tech as, as you have today. But it's also something that makes me really worried, right? Because I have, I am one of those dinosaurs that has gone through the previous climate, as it was called then, clean tech winter. And I was not in DC then, but very part of the ecosystem. And at the time it was much narrower. It was fuel cells, it was solar panels. And um, when that crashed, it created a winter that lasted for five, six years. So it is definitely my worry that with all this flood of money coming in, there's a lot of tourist money, which can then get burned the easiest. And that could then have huge implications, yeah. right? If you start having multi-billion losses in our space, 
it will definitely create a winter again. And that's, if you want, that's the big worry, not, you know, not just as in wearing my investor hat, but also wearing my human hat in a way, right? Because we really have no time to waste. And where do you think are the most over and under invested parts of climate tech and why? I can tell you the second fastest, which is, I think the hard to date sectors in general are massively underinvested, right? Given the need massively and understandably it's harder, right? You need to understand it's hardware often, right? You have to understand your stuff really inside out. What is overinvested? Again, I think this is subjective, right? And it depends how you see the world, right? So what I answer, I think for other people is going to sound very different. My big, my big overinvestment area is anything to do with so-called offset carbon markets, this sort of cheap, low quality stuff. I think that stuff is going to not disappear necessarily, but you know, that market, there's no way it's going to grow to the levels that some people would make you believe. So when you see some kind of cool blockchain offset carbon market, right, that is like toxic in my mind. I, mm. I've been in the carbon markets ever since phase one ETS, EU ETA started trading in 2005. So I've seen lots of ups and downs. And unfortunately, there's too many similarities between what's happening today and what happened 10 years ago, which is why I'm so skeptical. A lot of money has gone overvaluing companies that haven't really gone much, haven't really, haven't really got much to show. So I think that there will be tears in that space. I also think there will be tears in the whole sort of battery chemistry side of things, Yeah. right? Because there is no way that you're going to have, you know, like tens of differentiated chemistries out there, right? The market just won't take it. Another space where I think it's a little bit over, but it's corrected already to be fair. It's the whole space of cultured meat. Our view is that the B2C cultured meat is going to take a lot longer than what some people yeah. assume. The technological challenge of these huge bioreactors with contamination and, you know, lack of steel and you name it is, is actually quite a challenge. And equally the regulatory front is not a done deal. So we definitely think it's going to happen, but we think the journey will be longer. And again, those are massive hardware companies like, you know, high capex companies. So we think that what we saw last year, so we stayed out, you know, we didn't make a single investment last year because we thought that it was a bit of a, uh, a bit crazy what was happening. Right. So those I think are the you know biggest out there. there there's others who are smaller. Yeah. So again, as an investor, you need to have your views. You know, I might be wrong on two thirds of the thing I said yeah. or more. Right. But you need to have your view and then stick to your views and, you know, invest accordingly. Do you quantify the potential impact of a company pre-investment? In Great terms question. Of CO2, methane, et cetera. So we have a whole team at Systemic on the advisory side that does this for a living, right? In and out, they quantify impact, not for us, for other funds. So it's a space where we feel we know quite a lot. So we don't set KPIs at the fund level, right? Because if we said, oh, we're only going to invest in, you know, companies that can reduce, you know, whatever, 500 million tons, the reality is that at Series A, I can make up the numbers in a spreadsheet the way I want to, because it's who has a clue, it's a finger in the air. And so we do, we have KPIs per company, but they are specific per company, right? It's not at the fund, it's not at the fund level. And sometimes we're very honest and we say, well, actually for this particular company, especially when it's an enabler, I can't quantify. So it's going to remain qualitative, which is the reason why, you know, in this whole European alphabet of yeah. SFDR, you know, and this whole sustainable fi uh, finance directive, we are an article eight, not an article nine fund. By ethos, we are through and through an Article 9 fund, but we don't believe that the current European bureaucratic system is conducive to early stage investments. So we're sort of going to sit and watch what happens and then 
when we feel that it's the right setup for an early stage fund, then we're going to move to an Article 9. So just speaking about KPIs, when you're raising your fund, what sort of mo- multiple returns are you looking for and communicating to uh, potential investors? Sure. So fund one, we think is going to end up returning five to six X. So we would ideally want to repeat that for fund two. Of course, you know, it's a finger in the air as everything, but every single investment we make, we need to see a path to 10 X, you know, of course, half of half of the time or more will be wrong, but we need to see that path. And there's a lot of companies in climate that no matter how you twist the story, there's just no way they will get to the next because the time is too small. Right. So that's sort of how we look at things. So ideally we'd want to get to yeah. a five X plus for fund two as well. And what time frame? It's a classic 10 plus two year fund. I think what we learned is that this fund two is the first regulated fund. It's a Luxembourg fund. The first was not regulated. So when you are effectively a first time regulated fund, you cannot innovate because it's already hard enough. And so it's a very traditional 10 plus two fund with all this classic, you know, fund structure that you, you would expect to see in any other traditional VC fund. Okay. Makes sense. I'm really interested in the cement space, just given how much of a large emitter it is. And I know you've got an investment in the area uh, called Brimstone. It'd be great just to find out a bit more about what they do and what attracted you to, to make that investment. Sure. So they are, the founders met in, at Caltech. So it's a Californian company, though the first pilot, one of the founders, Cody, actually lives in Idaho. So I guess it's a West Coast, broader West Coast. The founders are exceptional. We've been looking at cement for quite some time. And again, you know, sort of top down, you can do the efficiency side of the game. And there's some great companies there, especially software. You can do carbon capture, which we don't believe is ever going to happen, or not at least at the scale that the industry wants to believe. You have the sort of carbon capture within the curing process, you know, the sort of carbon cure, carbon bills of the world. But from an impact perspective, it's a lot smaller, the pie. And then you have alternative cements, right? Which is where Brimstone falls in alongside many others. Where, what is unique about Brimstone is that their output is Portland cement, which is chemically identical to the traditional one, right? So we don't have to, you don't have to go through very time consuming regulatory approvals, right? To have a different spec. It starts from, it doesn't start from limestone. Right. When you put limestone through a kiln, that's where the majority of CO2 emissions come from, because limestone has CO2, has carbon. They start from silicate rocks that have no CO2, which means that when you sort of go through the chemical process to derive Portland cement, that process only has the fuel emissions, which can be decarbonized with, with renewable energy. But it doesn't have the problem inherent in limestone derived cement. The other nice thing about, port, about brimstone is that the output from their sort of chemical treatment of of silicate rocks is something that looks exactly like fly ash. So you don't have to transport it from elsewhere. And fly ash has huge issue because as we call, as we close mm. down coal plants, then there will be a shortage, right, of fly ash. So for example, cements that are heavy on slag or an alternative to fly ash that come from industries that are shrinking, you know, that's another space where we've always stayed out from. So they're building their first plant, as you said, they build a, they, they raised a 54 million series A. So one of the bigger ones I, earlier this year, I believe it was, and they're now doing their first pilot plant. You know, the great thing about the U S which we are so backward in Europe, right? Still is the fact that they have access to these subsidized loans from DOE, 
right? You know, the work that, the work that Jigar Shah does is so amazing, right? And in Europe, we are stuck with Horizon 2020, which is essentially a way to give money to large corporates, you know, with a little flag from a startup somewhere here and there. So there is no place in the world, you know, today with a kind of mechanism well, outside of China, right, where you have the mechanisms and money to do this kind of pilots without using equity own only. But of course, it's a very high risk company. The first pilot mm -hmm. is always, uh, yeah. let's see how it goes, right? So we'll know the answer in three, four years. But we felt it was an exceptional team. Is that a 54 million equity raise or is there a loan component there? The Series A was 54 million. It was led by VCVC and Breakthrough Energy Ventures. Okay. Appreciate we're coming close to the end of time now, but I just got a quick question on carbon capture before we uh, go into the quick fire round. On a previous podcast, you uh, you mentioned that you don't believe in carbon capture. I was just wondering what the, the reason is there. So carbon capture means that you have these large plants, right, where the input is very fossil driven, and then it goes back into the ground in the form of carbon capture. Look, there will be, how many billions have been wasted on that? 20, 30, you know, a huge amount of money has gone into it. All we have to show is the Stavanger pilot plant from Equinor in Norway, still run it at a massive cost. Look, I'm not, you know, obviously the easy way is to say, oh, carbon capture is an excuse to keep producing fossil fuels. You know, for the past 20 years, that has exactly happened. And maybe it's going to be, you know, applied at some niche levels. But I just don't believe that the technological revolution we're seeing is going to allow the nonsense of doing this massively expensive in, and, you know, inefficient processes where you then burn this in the ground with geological storage with no idea if it's going to escape or not, because there's been no studies done on that front. So will there be, you know, plants here and there? Yes. Is it going to be a massive industry? No. As opposed to carbon removal, which I think is going to become a massive trillion dollar industry because it's really the only thing left out there, you know, to avoid the Armageddon. What's your, like, how long do you think it is going to be before we can get to a, a place where the unit economics of carbon removal can actually be you know, in a good place. Who knows? And by the way, carbon capture, when that CO2 is captured from fuel stock and then used to produce something else, right? I think that's going to be a huge market. But carbon capture for the sake of burn it in, bury it in the ground, that I think is nonsense. Carbon removal, on the other hand, the numbers are staggering. So you will have to create in 30 years an industry that by output is twice bigger than the entire oil and gas industry today from scratch. And all the numbers from IPCC, right, they all point down to that magic number, 10 gigatons per ton, right, per year, starting from scratch. Look, I unfortunately believe that climate is going to go the way of COVID, right, in the way COVID, who saved the world? Two startups, BioNTech and Moderna. Who's going to save the world from climate when it really gets tough? Not in some mm. poor country in Bangladesh, but, you know, in front of our eyes here, right? And people can't just blame it on weather as they do. It's going to be a bunch of new technologies, right? Where then we, our job as venture capitalists is to make sure that those technologies are ready, advanced as fast as possible. So when things really get tough and they will, then the big money comes and, you know, tries to save the rescuable, right? That's, the, that's what I think is going to happen. You know, I'm sitting in the north of Italy right now and we're having the biggest drought in hundred years. My parents-in-law were meant to have their 50th anniversary tonight, but the restaurant burned down, right? There is. It's really, really, and people still blame it on weather, right? It's just astonishing. Um, and I think these kind of things are the new reality, you know, like London at yeah. 40 degrees, right? So 
I think the job we have to do as climate tech venture capitalists mm -hmm. is, is really crucial, right? It, which is similar to the job that the health people did, you know, by backing companies like BioNTech and Moderna early in the days when nobody believes in, in, in those vaccines. Very interesting. I quite like the comparison there between, you know, the few health companies were very instrumental in providing the right vaccines to take on COVID. The problem here is that there are so many different technologies required to tackle climate change. It's more holistic. But anyway, I, I was just going to go into the quickfire round and I was going to ask you, can you can you tell me the biggest mistake that founders and VCs make in climate tech? For investors, it's very easy. You fall in love. You know, just, do you know what I mean? Right. Where, you know, you sort of are so are so taken by this, you know, what the founders are doing that you sort of stop seeing the problems. And I think the, the best characteristic of good investors is that you maintain a very good dose, dose of skepticism and all along the way, right? That's very important. And in VC, it's harder, right? Because these founders are doing such amazing work and they typically are still in a, at a stage where it's easier, right? In a way to sort of fall, fall in the trap. So that's, I think, as an investor is always the biggest trap for founders. Uh, I think it's more the lack of flexibility, right? When you have an idea, you go down the path and you, and you persist too long until you realize, cut my losses, move on, mm -hmm. right? I think the concept of cut losses and move on, it's something that is not easy, right? Because usually you have to cut losses, which are, have taken a huge emotional toll on your life, right? For possibly a long time, but cutting losses and pivoting and moving really flexibly yeah. is something that is crucial. I guess cutting losses uh, kind of flies in the face of, of perseverance, which, you know, a lot of we discuss a lot in, in, in the entrepreneurship space. Uh, and that can be a really hard dynamic, you know, when to persevere and when to pivot. But, you know, many of the most successful companies pivot, right? They pivot. Sometimes the pivots are big, sometimes the pivots are small, but they all pivot. And I think if you persist in the, on the wrong, on the road path, on the wrong path for too long, Sometimes it's to do with the wrong people around you. Sometimes it's to do with the wrong sales strategy mm. or the wrong product. You name it. There could be, you know, 20 different things. If you persist on the wrong path, that's it. It's game over, right? At an early stage, you know, nobody's going to, you know, yeah. nobody, I think, is going to give you many, many chances. Next question is, which climate technology are you most excited about? So I think we are very excited about the role of Again, there's many, right? But if I have to pick one, which is maybe a little bit more out of the out of the stream, we are super excited about the role that biology will play in decarbonizing the system. Things like chemicals, possibly, you know, there's even companies that try to do it with building materials, food for sure. The world is going to look so different, right? Between now and 2050. And when I went to school, we learned about the randomness of nature and the scientific discoveries in the past five years have been so astonishing that we're quickly moving to a way of understanding, you know, the smallest, smallest components of nature. And that will be a huge boost to getting rid of fossil fuel derived feedstock into many of the sort of industries and foods that we, you know, that we use today. And so we, we are quite active in that sort of climate biotech, if that's how you want to call it, which I think is different, right, to many many climate tech funds that will, but at the same time, we don't do energy, right? So we're, I think we're, we're different from that perspective, right? We sort of maybe fit a different path, but that's also because the systemic DNA is so much around biodiversity, conservation, regenerative agriculture, that whole world, 
And biology is the key pillar in that. So that's why we decided early on to invest in talent to sort of build this biology thing inside. Mm -hmm. So last question. If you could send one tweet this year, what would it be? I don't tweet. <laughs> what would it be? You know, start from your personal choices. Don't blame others, right? I've, I've really had enough of a summer of hearing that it's always somebody else's fault. Things start from yourself. And we all have to be very cautious about that, you know, and I guess we all love flying. We all love, you know, this and that, but you have to start from your personal carbon footprint in a way, right? And be, a, I guess, super judicious in the way, in the way you act day to day, because all the technologies we back, everything we do, you know, nothing is going to work unless it starts from the individual. Thank you very much, Irena. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure to hear all of your insights from talking about systemic to fundraising, investing in the current climate and all the portfolio companies you've mentioned, as well as the quick bar round. Uh, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. No problem. Thanks again.